Yeah, we haven't even had the conversation of how we're, we're unique in the sense of engineering is also a part of our human performance team. <laughs> Just let alone the conversations we have about exercise hardening. <laughs> well, hold on. Wait, because, okay, let's go there. In, you have an engineer on your human performance team? Well, by necessity alone, a red exercise, RT, you have hardware, right? It's electronic and it's also mechanical. It doesn't always work right. So there are always things that have to be dealt with. Welcome back, everybody. Mops and Mo's. Uh, Alex and Drew here. This is week two of our four-part NASA series. Last week, we spoke with Shane, the astronaut. And this week, we are going to have one of two conversations with the human performance team behind the scenes at NASA's Johnson Space Center. So we've got four voices that you'll hear. Uh, Alex and I will introduce them in turn. First off, we've got Corey Twine. Corey is an astronaut strength, conditioning, and rehabilitation specialist, also known as an ACER at NASA Johnson Space Center. Uh, he works for KBR's Government Solutions U.S. Science and Space Business Unit. Prior to his role as an ACER, he served as a strength and conditioning coach for the Army Special Forces as a part of the Preservation of the Force and Family Contract, which would be POTIF, for those of you out there that are familiar, also with KBR. He supported astronauts during the shuttle era, acting as the primary ACER for several shuttle missions, including STS-114, better known as the Return to Flight in 2005. And since returning to KBR in 2018, Corey has worked extensively on projects spanning the design and implementation of mission-specific strength and conditioning programs for individuals in obscure environments. And I cannot think of a more obscure environment than outer space. Next up, Major Danielle Anderson is a physical therapist currently assigned to Johnson Space Center with NASA. She delivers a spectrum of neuromusculoskeletal care, preparing and supporting both American and international astronauts for long-duration spaceflight aboard the International Space Station. Additionally, she provides consultation and management recommendations to crew and deputy flight surgeons working neuromusculoskeletal conditions aboard the ISS. She serves as the Air Force's liaison to the Military Musculoskeletal Residency, a tri-service one-year physical therapy residency where she oversees admittance, regional instruction, and successful program completion of Air Force, Army, and Navy physical therapists. And I'm going to add this. If I'm not mistaken, she is the first one to hold the position. So it's, yeah, a, pretty cool, yeah, it's first, a pretty cool uh, opportunity to get military, healthcare, mm -hmm. human performance folks into a role like this. And batting third, we have Christy Keeler. So Christy, just like Corey, is an astronaut strength conditioning and rehabilitation specialist. It's a hard word. Uh, working again for KBR's Government Solutions, U.S. Science and Space Business Unit. Prior to her role as an ACER, she worked in several orthopedic settings and in organ and tissue procurement, uh, which sounds an awful lot like the black market, but I don't think that that's exactly what she's talking about. Since joining KBR in 2022, Christy has worked extensively supporting the neuromuscular care program by evaluating, treating, and rehabilitating injuries for both U.S. and international astronauts for long-duration spaceflight aboard the International Space Station, which is something that we talk about extensively both in this episode and the episode that you guys will hear next week. Uh, her role also includes servicing crew by instructing mobility classes, completing functional fitness evaluations, and training on spaceflight Advanced Resistance Exercise Device, also known as A-RED, which we discussed last week with Shane, if you missed it. And last but not least, we got 
Bruce Nieschwitz. He, like Christy, is an athletic trainer. He's also, as you might have guessed, an astronaut strength conditioning and rehab specialist, an ACER, also with KBR at NASA's Johnson Space Center. Bruce's primary role is to provide comprehensive strength conditioning, physical medicine, and rehabilitation services for pre-flight, in-flight, and post-flight to active astronauts. Since Bruce began at KBR in 2006, he has served as the primary ACER assigned to numerous shuttle and ISS missions. He also provides perspective, serving as a subject matter expert for designing and using exercise hardware for spaceflight. He's a board-certified and licensed athletic trainer with a bachelor's from Kent State University, was a graduate assistant athletic trainer at Mankato State University. Prior to joining the ACER group, he was head athletic trainer at Alvin Independent High School District in Alvin, Texas. Like we mentioned, this is part two of a four-part series we have going on with with NASA. And kind of the overarching intent with this episode and with this discussion with, with these four was to discuss the the pre-flight role that they play and then getting into a little bit of the role that they play for in-flight. So as you can probably imagine, the human performance team does not uh, go to outer space with the astronauts, which brings about its own unique set of challenges when we talk about remote coaching, um, remote, remote, remote coaching, really, if you think about it, uh, how you manage injuries, how you deal with training. Uh, we get into some interesting conversations around the equipment that they have available. And again, we talked about this last week with with Shane, but for the the folks in the ACER role and the folks as part of the human performance team, it's it's not only mastering that equipment, but figuring out how to teach the astronauts how to use it and then having conversations with the engineering team and other folks involved in the kind of physiology realm as to what what sort of equipment should they be looking at down the road. So for me as a strength coach, this was a fascinating conversation because you think that you have a lot of things to deal with on earth. Uh, try dealing with athletes who are floating around in space. And it's probably worth mentioning how this came to be a whole series. Mm -hmm. We had initially planned just kind of the astronaut episode. It's a neat thing. We get to nerd out about what it's like to be in space and stuff. But Shane emphasized multiple times during that conversation, as well as even more after we recorded, how much value he got out of the ACER team as he prepared for, executed, and returned from long duration space missions. So we knew that just kind of based on his endorsement and the amount of emphasis he put on it, we had to hear from that team as well. So that's how we ended up spiraling into a whole series here where we did not just the astronaut episode, but also conversations about the human performance team that supports them and the research that supports the whole kind of phenomenon of spaceflight human performance. Enjoy. Okay, let's hear. I jumped off. I jumped the gun too fast. Alex is right. Let's go back to the top. And because there's so many of you guys, let's just do a quick... Uh, we'll go in the order of my thing. So I've got Danielle, then Christy, then Corey, and then Bruce. So just do like a quick intro so people know your voice. You don't have to give your whole background, but who you are and what you do at NASA. So Danielle, take us. Hey, yeah, I'm Danielle Anderson. I am an active duty Air Force uh, physical therapist that's stationed at NASA, uh, supporting the ACERs that we're going to be talking with today. So yeah, super excited to be here. Hey, I'm Christy Keeler. I'm one of the ACERs and I'm an athletic trainer. Can you say, what does ACER mean? Astronaut Strength Rehabilitation. No. Wait, Astronaut <laughs> Strength Conditioning Rehabilitation Specialist. 
Corey, you're up. Corey Twine, KBR, strength and conditioning coach, stationed at Johnson Space Center. Um, I'm an athletic trainer as well, just like uh, Christy, and I uh, work for KBR and working at Johnson Space Center. Perfect. Because we wanted to structure these these episodes as kind of pre-flight and in-flight tonight and then post-flight later on, what does, and Bruce, I know you were going to give this a go earlier, but what does pre-flight entail? Like how far out do you guys start? I, I mean, I'm probably saying the wrong things here, but start getting somebody ready to to go to space or do the mission. Uh, yeah, so the uh, the pre-flight time period um, would usually constitute a, uh, a a time when the crew member gets assigned to a mission, officially assigned. A lot of times it doesn't get announced, but we hear about it a little bit early. But anyway, they get officially assigned to a mission, and then that time period until they launch. So we would consider that the, the pre-flight time period. Does that tend to be like a few months, a couple of years? How long are we talking? Uh, it can be... For most people, it's up to close to two years, a year and a half to two years before they would launch once they get selected. How do they, and again, apologies up front for a series of dumb questions, but how do they get selected? Like, what does that look like? Because in my head, I'm thinking of like a deployment cycle for the military where, you you know, the mission is laid out and you sort of rotate through units. But I mean, are these, is it, is it a seniority thing? Is it a hand raising thing? Is it just you're next on the list? What does that look like? Uh, I would say it's a little bit of all of that combined. You know, there are people that put their names on a list because they um, they are ready to fly. Uh, you know, there are some people that might pull their names out of the list simply because they have stuff going on with their family or whatnot, and they just don't think it's the best time in their life to do something like that. But most people are there to fly. I, I, mean, I mean, everybody's there to fly, right? So they all put their name in the hat at one point, and there is some seniority on on who would get the next call. Uh, there's also a kind of a uh, a list of who's, you know, you're not just going to keep flying the same people over and over. So if you have somebody that's flown recently, then they're going to kind of go back the, to the back end of the list and you're going to have everybody else fill in from that point. And so that's the seniority part that I'm talking about. But um, you also have mission needs, uh, specifics on what might be going on during that mission, if it's just a kind of a general mission or if it's something specific with uh, maybe there's a special EVA that that they have to do, uh, EVA, a spacewalk, um, there might be some very technical things that they might have one or two people in mind for, so they might be kind of picked to to those spots. That's that's basically what it is. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of getting along with your crewmate type stuff too. So if you've worked really well with a certain person that they know is going to be there, or um, you've flown with them before maybe, or... They just happen to think that you're going to gel with that particular crew. They might select you for a spot, maybe over somebody else that maybe doesn't have the same personality traits or something like that. So there are there are a number of things that, that get involved with selection. And, and then I guess from a from maybe an athlete management perspective for you guys, are there are there multiple? I guess pre-flights, are there multiple mission spin-ups going on simultaneously? Or does the whole organization sort of back a singular mission, if that makes sense? There are a number of missions in the mix. Um, 
you know, we're, we're right now we're about to land a mission. We have someone that is over in Russia that's going to launch soon. And we have a crew that just launched a couple of days ago. And we have, you know, I don't know how many, how many missions do we have in the queue right now? Four? Yeah, I think we have about three or four. Yeah, so typically, like Bruce said, they kind of, they get that assignment about two years in advance, and then we're launching people about every six months. So you can kind of think we probably have about three to four people um, on docket, kind of ready to rotate through that kind of deployment cycle, as you mentioned. So I want to put Corey on the spot a little bit as the strength and conditioning coach. You guys, Bruce talked a little bit about like really specific technical skills that people would be chosen for, for a mission or psychological profiling, making sure they work together well as a team and stuff like that. How, how specific, given that you're training these people for a couple of years for a particular mission, you know, the demands of EVAs, all that kind of stuff. What, how physical does the strength or how specific does the strength and conditioning get for something like that versus how much of it is just kind of keeping them generally healthy and fit that GPP kind of training? Yeah, I think the biggest part of the low hanging fruit is general fitness as it applies. So that is, even if you want to get specific, that's still a fundamental prerequisite that has to be accomplished before you get specific or get advanced. Um, but you have that low hanging fruit in general fitness the interesting thing here, or what's unique here, is that that general fitness piece can be of a variety of different modes of exercise for CrossFit weightlifters. We do have a few weightlifters, general physical training, or whatever. So they're different, a big variety of of exercise selection that we use to satisfy that general fitness piece. I think the things that we we really train for. Is just to prepare them for what they're going to experience in flight from the exercise standpoint. So, for example, um, the A-RED, or you'll get into more of the questions for in-flight exercise, the advanced resistive exercise device. That any pretty much any exercise you can do with a barbell, you can do with that. Um, the monitor, the workouts that we currently do on station now just equated to German volume training, you know, just the amount of activity or the volume, the sheer volume that they do. That is still in some respects, even though microgravity is the best environment to recover from exercise, doing that activity in flight is still stressful in a sense, but they, they do it every day to, I guess, for, I guess, to mitigate the stress of, of microgravity. So you just brought up something I had not considered at all. Do, do recovery timelines change? I mean, you, you already talked about volume prescription in flight and things like that, which kind of makes sense. Cause the whole point of that exercise is to stimulate bone mineral density kind of stuff and enough activity when they're in an environment where they're not using their muscles as much. But the flip side of that is they get amazing recovery. Is that, does that change the way you program in terms of frequency and training and stuff that they get like, no load for most of every day? Yeah, so you got to think that the body is great at adapting. So if you think about it, if you wanted to make a lot of money, it'd be awesome to have a room where you could go into and flip a switch and then you would just float for at least an hour. And if you had that, that will be one of the best um, recovery strategies you could use here in 1G. 
and microgravity, though, we, we still, it, we try to combat that with exercise because it's recovery, but then it moves to the point where it's a stressor, right? So um, we have to um, try to do the things we do in flight to overact that. The thing is, is that what they do from a resistance standpoint is not sustainable in 1G. So if you were to take just the in-flight protocol and you were to have someone to perform that same in-flight protocol in 1G, no one would be able to sustain that for a week or two weeks without overtraining. So from that alone, I would agree that in-flight, I mean, the, the ability to recover is a little bit higher from exercise. Yeah. <laughs> do you guys, do people complain about that when they get back? Are they like, oh, well, because I'm thinking of like guys that I've trained that have deployed and when they're deployed, they have nothing to do but work out. They come back, they're like, well, when I was deployed, I squat like 400 and then they come home and like, you know, it doesn't happen the same. I'd imagine if I'm squatting 2000 pounds in space because gravity doesn't exist and then I come home or conversely, I have some injury I'm dealing with and it heals itself super fast because I'm in space. Do you guys have anybody come back and they're like, man, I want to do the thing I was doing up in space. Uh, there's been some people that have come back and I wouldn't say complained about the volume or something that they're doing, but they kind of wish that they were back because they felt so much better while they were in space. But like Ori said, the recovery is so much faster or say they have some sort of nagging injury, you know, their shoulder bothers them or something like that. They go up there and it's, it seems to go away really quickly and they just seem to be able to do more than, you know, what they could before, or I should say that. The, the aches and pains don't really bother them as much as they they did before, if at all. And so they wish they were kind of back there, doing this the same old type of, you know, recovering from intensity. For the one to two year, I guess prior to the mission, are there any kind of like benchmarks, or I'm thinking like tests or other screeners that they have to go through and pass to stay, I, I guess quote unquote eligible for for what's on the calendar. Yeah, once they hit into that kind of two-year to 18-month pre-flight phase, they go through a, a myriad of a host of what we call Med B requirements. And so this is across the human system. So if you think about kind of that multi-system response to microgravity, uh, we're testing all of those different systems from a medical standards perspective. So from our team's perspective, we look at there, we have a functional fitness assessment that was kind of designed around your traditional Air Force, Army type style testing um, to just look at general strength and endurance. Uh, we, there's testing throughout the lab looking at VO2 max capability, isokinetic type testing, and various MRIs that are looking at um, vision and response to microgravity to the visual system. So once they hit that phase, there's just a host of medical things that are routinely tracked kind of at that 18 months, again at six months, and then some tests right before they launch. And then again, those are repeated right when they get back. So I got to ask, because what we have found over the last couple of years is that people are very, very curious about testing standards in different populations. Curious curious is a very friendly word that you they usually get pissed off about it. <laughs> yeah, they're for whatever reason, and I get frustrated about it. I wish people cared as much about their training as they cared about the testing, but that's just not the way it is. That's not how people's brains work. So I got to ask, you mentioned that there is a functional fitness test that is patterned off of some military style tests. Are you at liberty to tell us what that assessment is so people can go to their gym and see if they can pass the astronaut test? There's there's no 
when you when we call it a test, it's really just a comparison of um, of their pre-flight capability compared to their post-flight capability, and then they look at the delta between the two, okay. uh, see how they've done over their course of their mission, and to you know help evaluate the hardware that we put them on if it's adequate for everybody, and um, you know uh, the routine that we put them through maybe. Maybe there needs to be changes in in, in our in-flight uh, prescription, but there's no like minimum standard that somebody has to to get to to say, okay, now I'm qualified to get into you know space camp or something like that. It's it's uh it's there are medical standards and there are health standards from the medical side for astronauts to to become astronauts or to stay an astronaut, I guess you'd say. But um, as far as performance type of metric there doesn't there isn't really one on the books that says they have to do you know this many push-ups in this many minutes and, and that kind of stuff they could they could perform pretty poorly technically and still be considered an astronaut so fair so there's no there's no pass fail there's no point scale and things like that can it's almost like it makes you, sense can you tell us what you do test them on though to accent, uh, what I don't think is again privy information. Our current functional fitness assessment for all long duration uh, crew members would be body weight, hand grip, peak force, single leg stand test, sit and reach, a cone agility test, a one RM bench press, a one RM leg press, max pull ups, a two minute max push up test and then a two minute sliding crunch test. So that is our test battery for in-flight, or excuse me, for ISS long duration right now. And it benefits, I guess, for two reasons. One, again, as Bruce said, to get an understanding of what we do from a efficacy standpoint of the overall program for exercise countermeasures, and two, benchmarks for, uh, especially the post-flight reconditioning versus one people land as the two marks that we do post-flight. So we do it around R plus five to R plus seven. We'll test crew members when they get back. And then we'll do it again 30 days out of when they return. And then that can help us determine, okay, how they measure relative to where they were pre-flight and all those other different time points and when we assess. Yeah, I was going to ask the obvious question of how do you, like, what's the point of agility in space? But then I guess coming back, you would want to see how that's fallen off after a long duration flight, I would assume. Unless they're doing cone drills in the space station, which would be insane. Oh, you nailed it. And just and, and just to make sure you guys are following us, we we tend to use a lot of, you know, NASA lingo. We talk about L minus this, it's you know, this many days before we launch and R plus this, it's this many days after they return. So Corey said an R plus, I don't know what it said, five to seven. And that's that's five to seven days after they would, you know, splash down or a day, you know, six days after they splash down compared that to like makes sense. And we, we put them through a 45 day program after they get back. So we're doing testing within the first week and then we'll do it at right around a month after they got back. So I kind of want to back up to something that Corey had mentioned earlier about like what type of training preferences various astronauts have? Because he talked about weightlifters and crossfitters and things like that. How much does just their preferred style of working out shape the way you prepare them for space? 
Um, in my opinion, I think it shapes a lot of the pre-flight readiness because again, we are not authority over the astronaut core. So it's not like a college setting to where astronauts come in, we take the clipboard and we take them through the workout. You know, we're here primarily for a resource for them. And it is our goal and desire to be a valid and consistent, reliable resource um, for those means. And some of that being a resource and some of that compliance also leads to motivation. So if you have someone who loves CrossFit, their means of training, you know, and I come in and say, okay, well, we're doing this West Side today. <laughs> they might not come in as often and might end up going to their own gym. So in a pre-flight aspect, the CrossFit uh, are entertaining their preference is fundamental or is a key. It's just like the, the carrot, I guess. In an in-flight, they don't have that much ability. We're really restricted to the three types of exercise hardware that we have, which is the A-RED advanced resistive exercise device. We have a cycle that's called the SEVIS, and then we have a treadmill, a T2. Now, Bruce probably can allude to this more than I can from experience. There are some crew members that have been creative to develop some CrossFit or WAD type style exercise routines in flight. Um, but generally in flight, all of it is scheduled. And especially if you get seven to eight crew members up there at the International Space Station at a time, they have to adhere to that schedule. They might only have to uh, be on the A-RED for that amount of time and then they don't have access to it anymore and they can't do certain things. But yeah, so bottom line, pre-flight, we entertain all preference relative to our skill and ability to coach it. And in flight, we're more structured just because we don't have that ability. You guys, I mean, one of the things that we've talked about a couple of times here on the podcast with performance folks specifically is the idea of a multidisciplinary team. And we see it in the Army now that we've got rather large teams, sometimes up to 40 folks. But a lot of crosstalk between strength coaches, athletic trainers, physical therapists, in some cases, physicians and other medical doctors. And it seems that what you guys are after kind of takes that to the next level. I mean, you're a relatively small team for what you guys are trying to do. So can you guys speak to some of the the multidisciplinary aspects of your team and what that looks like as far as strength coach, physical therapist, athletic trainer, and what is it like? I mean, I can't think of a, of another equal in terms of the physiological challenge you guys are up against being in space yeah so we do um have a great team um two athletic trainers a physical therapist and a strength coach bruce and i work under a flight doctor that's our flight surgeon that's what we call them at nasa um and then danielle practices through the air force and then we also um have newly created multidisciplinary teams that incorporate behavioral health nutrition bone health neuro lab and exercise lab so we're really trying to look at operations and research um, to create the best outcome for the crew member so i know you, i mean you just mentioned sort of the cognitive piece and i know nobody here is a specialist in that space so we don't need to dive too far down that rabbit hole but from where you guys sit what is that component of the preparation and even the in-flight stuff look like the only thing I could think might be similar would be some of the stuff we hear about folks in submarines in the sense that you're kind of like stuck there you can't leave how do you prepare people for that and does it factor into the things that you guys do in in your pillars so to speak 
I would say that's something that we're actually working to build right now as far as building that relationship with behavioral health, obviously for HIPAA and a lot of other reasons. It's hard to share that information, and that's something that Corey has been a great proponent for and kind of breaking down those silos and allowing us to work together. Obviously, if they're dealing with um, some issues, mental health or whatnot, being homesick on station, that's going to affect their performance and how we're prescribing to them as well as nutrition, you know, are they getting enough calories? So all those, those three really play well together. And so that's why we're working towards that multidisciplinary team. Corey, did you have an answer to that before I, I keep this one rolling? No, I just do uh, continue to support what Christy said, though, but far as big, I just very big, even in our small setting, a multidisciplinary teams, usually outside of here, in athletics or even with the military, the demand is so great. They have all those disciplines, but they rarely get the opportunity to overlap and truly work together just because they're so busy. Mm -hmm. and, uh, within us, though, within our one little office, our little room, we have all those main disciplines as far as physical medicine, strength and conditioning all together. And I think it's great or it is unique because it creates that balance. And that balance is great because you can able to put the best foot forward. For example, I know how I am and how I usually do a program things even for strength and conditioning. I even know my temperament and my um, idea of certain things as far as, okay, my first go-to is add weight or do more reps. You know, in a sense, that might not always be the best solution for the situation. So weighing ideas against other thoughts, other experiences definitely helps the group get stronger and it definitely creates a more tempered response when necessary when dealing with complex situations. I kind of really like the direction the conversation went the last couple of minutes there, just because of the sheer number of parallels we're seeing between what you guys do in an environment that seems completely different. We're sending humans into space for long duration missions. They can't even come back to earth. They're in zero gravity, all that stuff. But the the problems or the things you're working through are astonishingly similar to what human performance teams working across the military are dealing with in terms of on Earth. How do we how do we address the like behavioral health component and how does that tie in with their exercise and their nutrition and those routines? Or how do we accommodate the fact that people have different preferences for how they prefer to train? It might not be perfectly scientifically optimal for whatever physiological outcome you're looking for, but it's it's better to pick the thing they're actually going to stick with and do consistently rather than a perfect solution that they don't want to participate in. It's a very different environment you guys work in. You have some really unique, really cool challenges and factors you got to consider, but the the root issues about the way your performance team operates is, is surprisingly similar to the environments most of the people we work with deal with with yeah we haven't even had the conversation of how we're, we're unique in the sense of engineering is also a part of our human performance team <laughs> just let alone the conversations we have about exercise party <laughs> well hold on wait is okay let's go there in you have an engineer on your human performance team well by necessity alone um and you guys i think bruce probably can allude to most of the mastermind of some of the, a lot of, and he probably knows every contingency that we had to deal with from a, a red exercise, RT, 
you have hardware, right? It's electronic and it's also mechanical. It doesn't always work right. So there are always things that have to be dealt with. And because of that piece, you have to have the, you have to have engineering on the human performance team, which is outside the gate or outside of our community. You don't have that. And also far as development. So you make another vehicle, right? That vehicle has to have a piece of exercise hardware. Who do they collaborate to create that exercise hardware as far as capabilities, as far as what it's supposed to be able to do or provide for the, the crew member. And a lot of that's also include our exercise physiology team, but um, just that piece alone adds a lot of weight to our day. Hey, Bruce, go ahead, because I have so many directions I could go with that. I was going to say, just to add a little bit to what Corey said, um, you know, there there's a lot of, um, I guess you would say, limitations to what we can do on orbit. It's not that we don't have, like, desires of, oh, this, would, this would be the best way to, to approach a certain situation, but sometimes we just can't because of the limitations that, that uh, working out in microgravity presents. And, and sometimes it's really not even a microgravity issue of just the fact that it's the physics of microgravity. Sometimes it's a scheduling issue. You know, if certain vehicles are docked to the space station or timing of when they're doing certain activities like some sort of a, a docking procedure or some sort of a altitude adjustment of the station or, you know, this particular device on orbit is being utilized at, at certain times. You know, you can't have certain devices working because of the vibrations and all this type of stuff. And so there's all kinds of scheduling issues that we don't necessarily schedule anybody for exercise on orbit but you know we train them to to do all this work and and then sometimes we can't really even get it done on the days that we might want to get it done simply because oh well there's such and such going on and they're not going to be scheduled for exercise that day or you know they have a some sort of restriction on the the treadmill that day or something and they can't even get on it uh, there was an email that we got today that the, there was some sort of violation because the uh, ARED, the resistive exercise device, they assumed that somebody was on it because somebody was working out on it and they didn't log out and they floated away from it. And it was during this time that this, you know, there was like no go on exercise and there was nobody on the machine, of course, but somebody was logged into it. And the engineers and the people on the ground all know what's going on. They, they have they have some tele telemetry that's coming down. And so there's there's a you know a violation that occurred but it wasn't really a violation because nobody was really on the machine but then there's a violation of in sorts because they weren't really supposed to be on the machine during the certain activity that was going on so you have to yeah that all that stuff gets scheduled outside of us but we have to prepare people um to just you know just work through these 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 kind of constraints or extra uh, exercise hardware failures or software failures and all that kind of stuff just comes into play i'm trying not to like laugh out loud for the benefit of the listeners but i'm just thinking of conversations i've had at work where like people missed pt because they had to go to the range and you guys are sitting here talking about we couldn't do this or that because we're in orbit and the vibrations are going to throw off the shuttle and bippity boppity boop <laughs> we're going to fall out of space and we got an email because somebody didn't log out of the thing and all the engineer like this is just just a you know public announcement for all the strength coaches. Like, after, just stop complaining because clearly <laughs> things could be a lot worse. 
I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking of the fact that somebody didn't log out of the machine. How many, how many people are watching them work out? I mean, how many engineers are sitting back here being like, Oh, Corey gave him 10 sets, 10 again. Like what an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) I've, I was thinking the exact same thing, Drew. The amount of the amount of stuff around like scheduling gym space or scheduling equipment or like trying to deconflict schedules, and you guys have to deal with like you only have a single digit number of people you're dealing with, but you also only have three pieces of equipment you're dealing well, with. Well, that's the other and thing. Sometimes you can't be on a treadmill while the space station is changing altitude. Like that's a that's just an unbelievable amount. Like I can't imagine hurt. mission mission control is sending emails because you messed up what and who's on the treadmill. Yeah. Do you get Corey, have you ever gotten in trouble? Cause they're like, dude, they can't squat it. Like we're go stop it, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I tell you, it, it is definitely challenging even trying to program in a sense of workouts where you can't control whether they do cardiovascular or whether they do resistance training first, you know? So if you have a high intensity cardiovascular exercise, and just scheduled to do a red first, they have to take that fatigue into the cardiovascular exercise. And then they're, you know, suffering through it or vice versa, where they end up with the cycle first and then going into high intensity a red. So if you have a high squat day and they're coming off the cycle, I mean, you wonder why do you see that when we get the numbers down and they're not hitting their loads It's because the schedule changes sometimes. And I was going to say, luckily, we don't have to worry about that schedule. It's not like we it's like it's like Corey said, it, it can be a problem because they're doing something that maybe not in the right order that you would like it to be done. But if you if I had to take care of all that scheduling kind of stuff, I'd go crazy. I would I would I would not want to do this job. There's a whole nother group that takes care of scheduling their day out. And it's not us. So that's good. That's a good thing, I think. <laughs> so. Obviously, like Drew and I come from the strength and conditioning world and we're nerding out about it, but I want to spread the love a little bit to the the MSKI specialists here. So are there any, because like we, we both worked RB primarily for a long time and there are certain injuries that are common in that population, right? Lower body, musculoskeletal overuse kind of stuff, knee and back kind of stuff. Burns from a vape pen. I mean, that's also true. Have you guys identified any common space flight injury risks? Like, is there anything that you see pop up that's pretty unique to the environment they're in, in space? Yeah, I think if we start kind of back to that, like, pre-flight mentality, um, a lot of our crew member coming with an operational background, right, that military setting background. So they're coming in with some operational type MSK issues. So our pilots are coming in with some spine type related issues that are pretty consistent with high performance air, air, aircrafts. Um, and then once they head into that pre-flight training phase and they're training for their EVAs or those spacewalks, um, that environment itself is probably the most physically demanding task that they have uh, when they're training in the neutral buoyancy lab. And then they're doing that in a suit that's not really designed for great mechanics of the upper body. And um, it's designed to protect them, right? It's their life support system. And so those altered mechanics um, of the suit have kind of led to a, a history of some upper quarter pathologies and upper quarter issues. So we tend to see a lot of our MSK injuries pre-flight kind of shift towards more of those spinal related issues or upper extremity type issues. And in flight, the same thing is kind of true. So Bruce had mentioned before, like recovery is an excellent um, 
an excellent thing and that a lot of times if they're going in with MSK type injuries, they don't typically tend to have a lot in flight, um, but their hands do become their primary mode of, of their way to get around and navigate the space station. So we see some upper extremity like hand and fingernail type injuries as the primary type things that we see in flight. Um, and then spine is probably the second. Uh, we do see some like space adaptation back pain that occurs right when they get into space. And there's a lot of proposed theories on why this happens. And um, there's some fluid shift changes that are occurring in the disc. There's some lengthening that's happening at the spine. And a lot of times this is really just self-limiting. Um, and it typically resolves within the first like 14 days. But it does make the strength coach and the acers job a little bit harder because now they're having to mitigate some adaptations to that new microgravity environment. So they have to be a little bit more cautious with how they're progressing that strength and, and load on the A-RED. So you guys obviously haven't heard it yet, but when this episode publishes, it'll be right after a conversation we had with a, a former astronaut. And he mentioned, just like you did, the EVAs being the most physically demanding piece of it. And within that, he specifically mentioned like manipulating tools with your hands becoming astonishingly difficult within the constraints of that suit. So that combined with what you mentioned of when they're on the ISS, they're getting around by using their hands a lot more than they're accustomed to on earth gravity. Is that, do you guys do anything in particular in terms of like preparing hand and forearm or like injury risk mitigation stuff for hand and forearm stuff? Is that a particular area of emphasis for your training? Christy, do you want to answer that one? Yeah, it's really um, based uh, individually for each crew. Um, a lot of them will either um, follow a program that we've created for them uh, in preparation for their NBL runs. Some have their own um, program that they've created over the years and what works for them. It's not a blanket statement for all, so it's very individualized. Um, some like to use devices on station like a gripper or TheraBands. Um, anything to keep maintaining that where, where others don't. So it really, it just varies from crew to crew. Does do things like tennis elbow and things like that start becoming an issue in space? Is that space? Elbow. Yeah, no, that's a great, great uh, thought. That's exactly what we see. We see a lot of just like repetitive grip and tasking and overuse type elbow issues. Again, they are usually resolved kind of independently, but we have had a couple of cases come up where we're, trying to manage and, and provide guidance on self-treatment. So kind of that telemedicine approach um, to where you're doing some telemedicine guiding, making recommendations on how to self-rehab um, these different types of issues. So tennis elbow is probably one of our most common, followed by some cervical pain, low back pain. Um, and then we have had some significant injuries like a cervical radiculopathy case that is a public case now, like fully released from a HIPAA compliant perspective. Um, and that one was an operationally impactful injury that we were able to successfully manage throughout that individual's time on station. And um, so you do see kind of a, a variety of things, but upper extremity definitely is the most common. And then to Christy's point on like that grip strength being very individual based, one thing that we're fighting against that's not just in traditional environments is, is that suit environment. And so individuals that have a good glove fit or that suit fits them really, really well, and they might have a different task demand because that suit fits them very well. Whereas somebody maybe that doesn't have as good of a suit fit, they're going to be fighting that suit a little bit more and it's going to be a little bit more physically demanding. And so that's where like our team, one of the biggest things that we 
try to push is just that relationship with the crew member and establishing that rapport and that trust that we can try to work through. Is it a suit related issue? It is, is it a human issue? So we can really understand where the training can be helpful to overcome some of those things that they're dealing with. I mean, I guess my first question is why would they send someone to space with a bad suit fit? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't want to say bad suit fit, but just a suit fit that is it's like, not. Hey, Dave, I'm going to wear your suit today. <laughs> yeah. It's a little small for you, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just not completely individually tailored. So we have, going back to that like human performance team, I would add another piece to that human performance and optimization team is the suit fit engineers because their entire job is to make sure that they get the best suit fit that they can. And they are working really diligently to make that happen. Um, but it is not a fully customized suit. And so it's still going to fit everybody a little bit differently. But the suit engineers do a fantastic job to try to mitigate as much as they can of it being a suit-related issue. There are currently only three sizes of, of the upper the upper torso of the suit. If you think about a suit of armor, the crew member has to kind of crawl up into the chest and arm section of the, of the space suit and it's a medium, a large, or an extra large. If they don't fit that, it's called a hard upper torso, a hut. And if they don't fit it in there very well, just the way it's designed, and if it's not, it's not designed for their body, it's designed for a body. And if it doesn't fit them well, then they're gonna be fighting the suit the whole time. Or it's gonna be something that they just have to put up with and it could cause some sort of overuse injury. Now we've had plenty of injuries that have happened in, in suit related, you know, repetitive traumas, I guess you could say from training in the NBL. There have also been a couple of injuries that have happened getting in and out of the suit in microgravity just because it's they're just were in the wrong position and they got pulled or they were trying to push too hard this way or that way and and then you have some sort of injury that comes up. So it has happened. Just a quick fast jargon question here. Christy used it earlier and Bruce just used it there. Is it MBL? What is what does that stand for? The neutral buoyancy lab. Okay. NBL. So yeah. That's the, that, that's the big that, giant pool that the astronauts. I was going to say, I think it's a swimming pool. So it's not a, a swimming pool. It's an NBL. Sorry. Giant pool. It's, it's a uh, hundred feet wide by 200 feet in length and it's 40 feet deep. So it's one, it's at one time, it might've been the largest indoor pool in on the planet. I might, maybe there's one that's bigger now, but I didn't the set, the scene, um, the set for Titanic was like at one point the largest maybe that's that could be totally wrong i'm just throwing it out there because i think i saw it on instagram but like the set for titanic was at one point the largest something or another that had to do with water anyway back to space um <laughs> i'm glad you guys mentioned this the suit because one of the questions that i had was like the 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 crossover between the ergonometry of of being in space versus what you guys deal with so like we talked about the the equipment that you're limited to in terms of when they're in flight, but then also the suit and just the general environment that they're in. Is there a world where you guys would see so, so many overuse injuries, so many injuries related to a singular task that like there's room for the engineers to change something? Or is it so set up to keep a human being alive that they're not so much concerned about like, okay, yeah, fine. Like they keep getting tennis elbow, whatever. They're not dead. Does that make sense? I would say that it's gotten better over, over the years. Um, there was, 
there was a time period years ago where there was an expectation to do your NBL training and keep your mouth shut because this, this is just something that you have to go through. Um, it was kind of, I wouldn't, it's never, it's never a policy, obviously. It was just a little bit of a kind of the, this is the way things are kind of attitude. And um, it was the work of people within our group from years ago and the flight doctors. And, 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 and I don't want to say that there's never been a problem since then. Obviously there's, there are problems that pop up sometimes a suit fit is just incorrect or there's a mistake made with measurements or something like that. And, and, and it just doesn't fit well for that person. If, if it continued down that path, then obviously it will set somebody up for an injury. So um, like Danielle was saying, you bring the, the suit fit people into this mix and whether it's a redesign of a tool or it's just a better process of how they get fitted to the suit or the way out what we call it when they're in the water and they, and they become neutrally buoyant. These are all important things that could, that could possibly lead to, you know, a, a poor run or some sort of poor fit that we would call, a, you know, a poor fit for that day. And so um, anything to mitigate the injury or reduce risk is, is what we're trying to do. So it's gotten much better over the years with, with the, you know, kind of the, kind of the attitude of, you know, keep your mouth shut and just keep working hard because you want to, you know, you want to get picked for that mission or you want to get, you know, picked for a mission. <laughs> so you're going to, you're going to just keep doing what you have to do to get through it. And, and then you may end up with us because, you know, they might have an overuse injury. So that, that, that aspect of, of the, the program itself has, has really gone away quite a bit. And I think it's been much better. So we're, we're getting close here. We've kind of been blurring the line between pre-flight and in-flight. We've talked a lot about kind of things that span that gap because you have to prep for in-flight with how you do your pre-flight protocols. But I have a last couple questions here to kind of close out pre-flight preparation for launch before we go into like fully how things work once they're in space. But a big one is, and you guys have mentioned the the three pieces of equipment that you have up there. How much are you able to prepare astronauts for the experience of training on those specific pieces of equipment in that zero gravity environment before they launch? And then as like a second part of that question, how different is it preparing an astronaut for their first time on the space station versus preparing somebody who's experienced that before? I'll jump in there. Um, so A-Red, uh, each crew member, no matter if they're, um, JAXA, which is the Japanese astronauts, um, ESA, which are the European astronauts, CSA, which are the Canadian astronauts, RSA, which are the Russian cosmonauts, or our own crew members. Um, we train them on ARED, and that's 16 one-hour sessions. So they get very familiar with the device. There's no way to simulate that for zero-G down here, and the feedback we get from crew that have flown um, is that it feels very different. Um, it, it's not fixed to the floor like it is here and you're working against 1G. Up there it functions more like a clamshell and you have to kind of keep a cadence with it. Um, so it's definitely a dance that they learn when they get up there and they have a handover as well. So a crew that's already been up there is going to walk through a whole workout with them, um, ensuring that they are operating safely. We also do um, a full ARED session with them via Teams and we'll talk and walk through a whole ARED session. So if they're having issues with form 
or, um, you know, making sure they're getting deep enough in their squat or just changing hand placement or able to navigate through that. As far as uh, T2, the treadmill and Sevis, the cycle, um, again, not a whole lot that we can do to replicate that down here. When they get to station um, T2, they're usually loaded about 65% of their body weight. And so that's kind of where they start and work their way up throughout the mission. Sevis, <clears throat> excuse me, Sevis is a little bit more of a difficult exercise device. And that's where they give feedback that it's much more difficult than riding a bike on the ground. You don't have handlebars. You don't have a seat. You have um, a, kind of a rack behind you with a pad so you can lean against. Um, and from what crew, member have said, uh, crew members have said and what Bruce also often says, it's like riding a tricycle, I mean, a unicycle. Um, so it's very hard to keep that momentum up with the high wattage and keeping your balance at the same time. So that's why they have the rack to hold on to. Uh, a really weird question. This might not make any sense, but you talked about the rhythm because of the clamshell operation of the A-RED. And there's some cool videos out there if people want to check them out to see what it actually looks like. Because the whole point is like not putting any force into the actual station itself. So it's, it's all an isolated. insane video. It's not a cool video. It's an insane video. And you watch it and your head starts turning sideways to try to make you line up with where their feet are as they float through space. Anyway, keep going. But the, the question I had, and this is purely based on just having had this experience last week, but flywheel training also enforces like a certain amount of rhythm where you have to like do the eccentric, the way the machine is doing it. Is that something you tie in in terms of like giving them that experience. I don't know if it's accurate to it at all, but I, I see a couple of smiles. So maybe I'm onto something. I don't know. I'm going to let Corey speak to flywheel because that's his favorite. But I will start off and say that T2, Sevis and Arid all have what's called a VIS system. So a vibration isolation system. And that's what you'll see when you're watching those videos of Arid. You'll kind of see it on the side. That's what's absorbing the force um, from the exercise. Um, and flywheel, I'll hand it over to you, Corey. Uh, yeah, well, flywheel is an exercise hardware or flywheel like flywheel. It's a piece of exercise hardware that we're going to have on the Orion vehicle. So the Orion vehicle has a step, two purposes. The so part of it's a step, that's one function. The second function is function as an exercise device. And that exercise device is the flywheel. And in some parts, it works like a flywheel. That's the, our yo-yo. That's probably the best way to describe it. Um, we do have, I think we just purchased the extra fly flywheel or their device. We also have a K-Box. Um, all three of them are kind of different, but all three of them at the same time are yo-yo type principles. So there can be some crossover uh, from a learning standpoint. Um, I, I don't think though the flywheel we have prepares anyone for A-RED though, or that cyclic or that clamshell aspect that Christy described. That's kind of, um, I guess, something that they have to guess, experience and go for with, with, when they're up there for themselves. Fair enough. Um, and then I have one final one. I know Drew's excited to ask a bunch of like in-flight specific questions. And I do know we're we're getting at the hour mark here as well. But uh, is there any, and we're going to do a whole separate episode, hopefully on the research of all this, but for any of you guys, whether it's rehab, whether it's performance or preparation, 
Is there any specific research you point to that has informed the way you train astronauts? Or is there anything that you would love to see research that could help clarify some questions you still have about what works? I would think far as our nutritional biochem lab, the amount of information that they pump out and the work they do is awesome. They hurt my feelings when I read some of their information about in-flight diet and red meat or certain proteins are counter and indicative for, I guess, astronauts. So for example, um, I can't describe the exact process from a biochem standpoint, but if certain amino acids that end up producing acid or too much acid, obviously bones are buffer in that process or certain go that is bad for bone. In addition to, I don't know the exact mechanism I do know sodium is bad for bone, probably two reasons why I never fly. But um, that information is great from a just an educational standpoint. Um, and I think I think the more I want to learn uh, is in the area of bone and relative to our ability as far as exercise hardware, what we can do to mitigate bone or to promote better bone metabolism, specifically in the trabecular bone. So right now with ARID, we have ability to increase the load or the intensity, um, which is great for a cortical bone or the outside, but you still have that leakage of bone on the inside, that trabecular bone or that part. Is there anything from an exercise countermeasure standpoint that we can do to mitigate that? I'm, I'm shaking my head again because first we were scheduling around altitude change. Now we're strength coaches thinking about bone linkage because of sodium intake. And I'm get, like, at some point this week, I'm probably going to get into a verbal disagreement with somebody over like reps and sets. And meanwhile, Corey's over here worrying about bone linkage. But it brings up another point and, and, you know, putting ourselves now in space. Some of the things, and I'm sure there's there's myriad of these, but just can you guys talk about some of the physiological problems, maybe not problems, but like maybe riddles you have to solve in terms of muscle atrophy, bone density loss, fluid shifts, all that kind of stuff, and how that factors into the conversation? Yeah, I think just thinking of it from a, a multi-system response is how I like to consider it um, every system is impacted from the moment we enter the microgravity environment. So you mentioned like the, the fluid shift from a cardiovascular perspective, without the lower extremity helping push that fluid and circulate and gravity pulling the fluid down, all that fluid shifts uh, up towards the heart. So the heart perceives that as an increased uh, amount of fluid on the heart. And so it's going to try to get rid of it. So the body naturally kind of resets to this new microgravity um, set point and gets rid of that excess fluid. So we have a reduction and a, a volume, overall volume loss. Um, from an immunological perspective, there's changes to the immune system. From a bone perspective, Corey already mentioned that there is a linear response to bone loss over time uh, once, once we enter the microgravity environment without any kind of countermeasure. Uh, we see changes in the ocular system. So there's an, an entire research team devoted to these um, space-acquired neuroocular syndrome or, or the SANS team. Uh, we see spine, we see changes related, like you guys mentioned, from a strength perspective or skeletal muscle perspective. And so it's just really interesting that all these different systems are now kind of adapting to this new microgravity set environment over time. 
I mean, I have so many questions off of that because that creates like a a really unique like set of problems you have to research, set of things you would have to do to address them. Um, I guess I'll ask kind of a quick one because I was surprised by it a little bit in our in the episode that's going to air before this when we talked to Shane Kimbra, he talked about arriving back on Earth after time spent in space stronger than when he left is like I I always thought of it as hold on hold on context preface that because Alex and I had a bet and I said (laughs) I bet they come back from space stronger than when they left he said no way Shane said oh yeah no I come back stronger so I just want everyone to know for the second time I won that it's true okay keep going Drew gets his I told you so moment I uh, because everything I had read everything I'd looked at everything I had heard it basically seemed like exercise in space was mostly to like slow down losses or try to mitigate losses. But now he's talking about, we haven't just mitigated some of those losses, but in some cases it seems like we've turned them around and we can quote unquote make gains in space. Is, is that the extent we're at? Are are there some problems we haven't quite solved to that degree or is it getting more and more to the point where we've identified these issues and we've got protocols in place that can not only mitigate it, but, going us in the right direction. Well, I, I worked with Shane on both of his ISS flights, so I guess I'll, I can speak to some of this. Um, the, you know, the the programming that we use is um, we kind of we kind of came up with this this idea, you know, many years ago, and we just kind of took a shot at it. Well, this is what we think we should do, and and it seems to work pretty well. Um, most of the time we we use this, a very similar approach with everybody um the, the stuff that shane's talking about is I, I would say my personal opinion is that that to echo what corey said our biggest problem if you looked at just you know bone health muscle health and say cardiovascular health just those those three that we have the devices to you know to affect um bone is is the is the most challenging and it's the it's the longest lasting um you know these guys will come back from space and they they may have a, a strength and performance loss muscularly and they might have a cardiovascular decrease um but those two can you know they can <clears throat> with training they can come back pretty quickly whereas you know the bone health takes many years to to get back and then it might not even be you know restructured the same way that it was before <clears throat> excuse me the architecture could be totally different so you know, there's a lot to learn there. Um, I, I think that what Shane was was getting to is that he he was an he's an avid gym user, right? He likes to work out and he he likes to stay in very good shape, and he is a very strong person. Um, but as an astronaut, you have tons of things that you have to do. Your pre-flight schedule is jammed. You can be in pretty good shape before you leave, or really when we do our testing, and you the first thing that tends to get pulled away from their scheduling is exercise time. And because of their schedule or travel schedule, they might be living in a hotel somewhere or something like that. And they might not have the best access to a gym like ours. And so they tend to have a decrease in their, in their overall fitness. Uh, we see that in the numbers when we look at um, just our pre-flight testing, because we'll do, you know, we'll do something like it's six to nine months out and then we'll do it again at like uh, three months or you know, three months or less out. And a lot of times we'll see a decrease in performance. Of course, then they go up to space and every day is scheduled for them. Their their entire day is scheduled out and they get two and a half hours 
of time that they can exercise. Um, and that's broken up between the resistive exercise device and the one of the two, either the cycle or the treadmill. <clears throat> and that's every single day. And they might, they might choose to work out seven days a week. We expect them to get at least six days a week. And that's every single day for, you know, 25 weeks or so, you know, for five, five months, six months. So they're, they're doing a, and a lot of exercise and they're ramping up, you know, it's, it's a progression that they follow. And so they, they might come back a lot stronger than what they were before, just because of the sheer volume that they're, that they're doing up there. Um, they might not be able to express it at first when they first come back because their systems are all whacked out. But, um, you know, after a week or two or more, when we do our, our testing that Danielle was talking about, those med B testing, a lot of times we'll see that sure enough, they are, at least the measures that we're looking at are, are increasing in their capability of, to push a load or to, you know, ride the cycle on a VO2 max test or something. So what Shane is talking about is that, yeah, sure enough, he was in better shape, man. When he came back down, he was able to do leg press higher load than what he was pre-flight. Um, it's not that way with everybody. It's it's um, variable sometimes. But what we will see is a little bit of a trend of um, that they come back, their immediate R plus five to seven testing shows a decrease simply because their systems aren't completely adapt readapted to earth yet. And then as our reconditioning program builds and builds and builds, the R plus 30, we do another testing. And sure enough, with most people, they're at or above what they what they were before they launched. And so when when you look at when you look at adaptations, you you know, are they really getting that much stronger or that much more capable on the cycle within a few weeks' time? Or is it really just an adaptation from, you know, Earth to or from microgravity now and back to their earthly living. And I would say that it's a little bit of both, but there's probably a lot more just adaptation to the earth again, and that those systems are now functioning properly again. And it's not necessarily that, you know, the ACER group is just so genius that we can put them through all these crazy workouts to just get that boost in their VO2 max score all of a sudden. It's, it's, it's a little just, you know, nature taking its, its course and the body readapting, as Corey said, it's an amazing, machine so um we apply the scientific aspects of, of everything and we want to make sure that we're doing everything uh, by the book and uh, research based but we're not the ones that are doing the work really the crew members are the ones doing all that work and their body is adapting and, and lo and behold they they improve over time when we apply the right the right stressors so I know we've been going for about an hour here and we're going to, we're going to find a time to get back with you guys to do some further in-flight questions and then dive deep into that rehab process you're talking about. So I, I want to respect your time and bring this to a close, but I, I was just fascinated as you were talking, Bruce, by another really strong military parallel here of, we know, like I'll, I'll speak from the military side, but we know that fitness is important for deployed service members. And we talk about physical training all the time. But because of the logistics of pre-deployment training and all the things that happen in the months leading up to it, we tend to deploy people at a lower level of fitness than they might have been at a few months prior just because they're going to combat training center rotations and they're doing railhead or loading equipment onto boats or whatever it is that they're doing can get in the way of the actual physical training. So we tend to deploy them at a little bit lower state of physical readiness. And then because of the nature of what deployments have looked like the last decade or two, 
they tend to get in really good shape while they're deployed, not because the protocol is super special, but because time is structured differently and they have the ability to do it. And it sounds like a really, really similar phenomenon happens with astronauts where you get them in really good shape, but then things get real hectic in a couple months leading up to actual launch because they might be launching from a different country or there might be some unique training things they have to do right before launch. And and fitness is the thing that gets cut to make all those things possible. And then finally you get to space and you have a really structured schedule and you have to get on the A-Red and the CBIS and the treadmill and things like that. And now you get to, to rebuild what you lost those couple months before launch. And it's really... I don't know if there's anything to take away from that, but it's really interesting how similar the parallels are, not because a military deployment looks anything like a trip to the space station, just the logistics of sending people to difficult environments where they have to do other kind of technical training too. That was really neat. Yeah. They also have six months to do it when they're up on the space station. So they might have a little bit of a drop when they first get there because they have that adaptation to space and then performance drops, but then they have six full months to, to make up for it. Now, I was going to say, I think that's a really cool capture, too, because once we start the Artemis initiative even more with manned flights, we won't have that ability. They're going to have to be able to go or move a mission ready in, say, eight to 10 days. Um, and we're having those conversations now about what that's going to look like with uh, different exercise hardware altogether. So it's very pretty interesting. Well... Drew, I don't know what you got, but I think we have a bunch of other questions we want to ask you guys, and we'll have to save those for our follow-up episode here where we get to go through the rest of all this. Yeah, thank you guys for coming on. And the one voice we didn't hear was Anna's because we didn't get in trouble and we didn't cross any lines with the PAO. So that was good too. Yeah, but I do have notes. I'm going to send you a follow-up, but it's mostly just additional info to build on what they talked about. Perfect. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, thank you guys. And we will get back in touch to schedule episode two. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you guys. Hey, Alex, let's cover our ass real quick. Oh, great idea, Drew. All right, guys. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Before you go, please rate and review the pod on the listening platform of your choice. You can also visit us on our website at www.mopsinmos.com. That's mops, the letter in, mos.com. You can check out the library of podcast episodes, our latest blog entries, any helpful resources, and also sign up for our newsletter. Drew nailed it. Just to underline a couple of things, the podcast entries have in-depth show notes on the website. So if you missed anything or you want to read any of the research we talk about, it is all there. You can, at the bottom of the website, sign up with your email and receive future updates from us. The blog posts go a little bit more in-depth in kind of written form on a couple of topics we get questions about all the time. But most importantly, I just want to ask all you guys, our best way the word gets out is absolutely word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell the people you work with, anybody you think would find it useful. Thanks for spreading the word. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us an email at either Drew or Alex at mopsandmos.com. Or there's a contact form on the website. Thank you.